Alrighty, we got ourselves another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. And once again, pleased to be joined by Alex McLean from Dauber Hockey. Alex, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks, Steve. Uh, keeping busy. Yeah, same old, same old. Try not to go outside as much with the uh, case counts going up and trying to follow along with hockey maybe restarting uh, sooner than some of us thought. Is it really going to start sooner than we thought? Like, all I'm getting from the NHL right now is we really want to start on January 1st, but with absolutely no plan on how they're going to start on January 1st. feels a little bit like kids with this wish list of things that they want, but they have no means of actually getting them, no plan, no nothing. Yeah, I, I think uh, with the January 1st date, the more that they keep firmly throwing it out there they will have to start taking some action on it and if we start seeing that in the coming days or the couple of weeks leading up to December then I would be a little bit more confident in seeing that uh, get started but you're right as of today it doesn't look uh, like we should be optimistic about that kind of start date. No, and, and like you said, cases are on the rise and the border is not open and it's probably not going to become open. So maybe that just leads to an all Canadian division. But I, I've been saying continuously, the NHL cannot operate without fans. They do not have the TV rights deals that are lucrative the way the other sports do. The NBA, they're going ahead. They're going to start right before Christmas. They're starting December 22nd, I think is what they've agreed to. And they're going to plow forward with it because they know they need to get back on the regular timeline. And the NHL needs to get back on that timeline as well because they don't do well with competing with the other sports leagues and they don't do well with competing with just summertime in general. And with the NHL, they have to have fans in the stands because they don't, they make piss for money on their TV rights deals. And those TV rights deals are coming up pretty soon. So maybe they'll be able to get more lucrative deals in the future, you would hope. And then they could survive one of these in the future. But right now, I just, I don't see an avenue to them making any money. Basically, they're going to have to exist in the red until they can have a significant number of fans in the stands. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a given right now that they're going to be taking losses. But at the same time, they do still have to keep things rolling so that it doesn't make it even worse, especially once they do kind of get back to a more normal situation. The more that they can keep things rolling in the moment, they'll have a better time starting things up again in my mind anyway. And I think that's why we're seeing the push to try and uh, get things going as much as possible, even if it's going to mean that there's no fans in the in the stands to start. Yeah. I think it's just, it's more likely that we end up not seeing a season in this sport specifically because of the strict timelines that they're on. I don't think they're going to be able to get fans in the stands the way they want them to and the way they need them to in order to be able to pull off a season with enough games that it's an actual season and that it's not going to cost them more than what it takes to put that season on. So I think that they suffer less losses if they just punt this season coming up 
and get back on the regular timeline when next fall, I think there's a very good likelihood that things are back to normal. That's the hope. Yeah. You just look at the traditional timeline for pandemics like this and it's about 18 months. So that puts us on track for, I don't know, a year from now. I can't say I've seen the 18 months thing anywhere, but uh, if you're going with that, then uh, I might have to hold you to that. Please do. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't know if, if I'm wrong, like if we're, if we're, out on that by a month or so, I'm still going to count that as a quote unquote victory, but I, I'm just, I'm just looking at what the traditional timeline for pandemics are. And usually they make their way through the population within that timeline, but no one wants to hear about this shit. No. It's, it's part of their daily lives. So um, in spite of the fact that I am so pessimistic about this upcoming season far more pessimistic than I was about their return to play in the summer. We went ahead and we, we already had ourselves a fantasy draft for the upcoming season. And it was started by some innocuous tweet from the Keeping Carlson lads talking about auction drafts and how they're the only way to go. And I said, well, what about blind auction drafts? And those fucking guys are so in love with this stuff and so motivated and so awesome that within, what was it, hours of my throwaway tweet response that they had rallied a group of 10 of us, including an extra person, one, uh, Elon, volunteered to run the league and not actually participate in it so he was taking all of our blind bids for this fantasy league and we went ahead and over the span of two weeks we did this weird blind auction draft 10 forwards four defensemen everyone gets 200 dollars to spend each day everyone would nominate one player for one dollar and then we would all get bids in and have no idea what anyone else was going to bid and just hope that you would be able to put together a fantasy team on budget that made the most sense. And I think a lot of us just winged it. That was generally your strategy here, Alex? 100%. There was no planning going into it. I don't think I had done an auction draft since maybe 2014. Um which went well. I just uh, found they took too long to do live and it's tough to organize doing it any other way. So I've mostly ended up doing uh, snake drafts the traditional way since then. But uh, this seemed like a great opportunity to kind of take advantage of a lot of downtime and a great group of people with a fun idea. So yeah, yeah. there was no planning that went into it but uh yeah it ended up uh going over pretty smoothly i think yeah 10 lunatics making blind bids on players but we're all super passionate about hockey fantasy hockey and the stuff in general the auction format is so much better than the snake draft format i think that 
it forces you to put your money where your mouth is. You put actual monetary values on players and it allows the whole player pool to be available to you provided you're willing to spend up. Now, the blind auction process doesn't necessarily allow for those market factors to drive prices as specifically as they need to be, but also in a sense, it can force you to overpay for the players that you really, really want because you don't know what anyone else is going to bid. So you almost have to go above and beyond that to get what you want. Yeah, it, it was uh, quite eye-opening in terms of where some people valued players and how much you had to spend to get the guys that you wanted. And the first day, nobody had any idea where anybody was going to go. You had to, there was no set market price, nothing to go off of. And trying to come up with numbers that made sense was uh, a bit of a crapshoot at best. Yeah, I think that the first couple of days, kind of set the market for what people were going to do, what people were going to put up for specific tiers of players. And you, you freewheeled it. I mostly freewheeled it going in. I, I knew that I had a strategy of a couple of things. I don't know if you noticed, but every single day I nominated a defenseman. Mm -hmm. And that was because defensemen were more scarce so I thought it'd be a good way to get people spending their money more frivolously early on is to nominate players that I thought would get bid up and people would spend more money than they should on these defensemen. So I thought it was a good way to get those players out of the way. And then I would be able to snap up some players I was more interested in later on in the draft. Now I deviated from that a little bit with, Dougie Hamilton on the second day, but that was part of freewheeling, right? And then instantly it was like, no, you're being dumb. Go back to the go back to the process. But I thought yeah. just looking at the way that you kind of bid, it seemed like it took you what three or four days before you were even willing to spend any kind of money at all. I think I got uh if I remember correctly, I got Dougie Hamilton, and that was as you said, day two. Right. Um, but uh yeah i was i was very slow in accumulating any kind of uh players on my roster i was into the middle of the draft before my team started to fill out i was definitely a little low on uh people and i think with 200 dollars to fill out a lineup of uh 14 players i i didn't want to go too heavy too early and kind of be stuck into a backed into a corner mm -hmm. and yeah I, I followed uh kind of a similar path in terms of nominating uh almost all defensemen early on because i i also saw that there was maybe a bit of a shortage of talent there compared to the forwards and i i was thinking that i would try to fill out my defense earlier rather than the forwards, because there's a lot more flexibility in picking up forwards later for cheaper. There's just a larger pool that uh, you can find bargains in. Meanwhile, the defense, there's a lot less uh, 
lot fewer options in the top tier and it drops off a lot more dramatically from there. So I was generally focusing my bidding a little higher on defense to start. And yeah, it ended up being a little uh, lower and I adjusted up and ended up uh, winning quite a few bids in the middle rounds. And then uh, by the end, I was kind of just hoping that some players would fall through the cracks to fill up my roster for the remaining few dollars I had to spend. So that's kind of the nitty gritty strategy type stuff. But for me, the more interesting part for listeners of this podcast and for myself, frankly, is what large disparities in bidding can kind of mean, right? Where what players did you bid outrageous on relative to market? Why do you, why are you really interested in those players? What about those situations gets you excited because we could talk about the strategy all day and that's going to be very league specific to this, this scenario. So I I guess off the hop, the, one of the biggest disparities that I noticed was I got Andrei Svechnikov for 27 bucks and you only bid 11 bucks. So I'm wondering, was this just early on trepidation? You didn't want to go too heavy on a guy like that? Or is, are you, do you not think that Svechnikov's going to have the breakout that I think he's going to have, or are you kind of lukewarm on Carolina as a whole? We mentioned you got Dougie Hamilton. So you have some vestment in Carolina. I, I really like Svechnikov. I think uh, looking back on it, I would have bid more for him. I'm not sure I would have still on day three ended up going up to 27 for him, but uh, he he's worth something in that ballpark. I think that was uh, still me adjusting to the price range. And I ended up bidding on uh, both him and Kevin Fiala at $11. And I ended up getting Fiala at $11. So I, I, think I would take Fiala at 11 over Svechnikov at 27, but uh, in a vacuum, I think in fantasy leagues this year, I would prefer to end up with Svechnikov over Fiala if the price was the same. So I, I think that was partially just me underestimating the market on him and maybe thinking that he might fall through at that rate. I, I think I'd also put out big dollars uh, as Dreisaitl and Kucherov were both up uh, for auction that day as well. And I was thinking if I got one of them, then spending a lot of money on a second tier guy like a Fiala or Sveshnikov or Miller that we had up uh, would really handcuff me. So I was, I guess, being a little cautious in not uh, tying up too much money in just a few players in the early days. Well, it's funny because I ended up getting dry for a quarter of our allotted dollars and, and then Svechnikov at 27. Mm -hmm. Just thinking about, we'll get to Fiala in a minute because I bid far less than you did for him, but appreciating that you would probably rather have Svechnikov than Fiala. I wonder, I wasn't able to get Hamilton, although I did 
unlike the strategy that I discussed before, I actually did bid quite a bit for him in the early going. And I wasn't able to land any of the other Carolina guys. And generally, I think that if Svechnikov is going to have this big breakout and be better, that I don't think he was worth what I spent on him if he just repeats what he did last season. But if he has this bigger breakout, it's probably also going to mean that Teravainen and Aho and Hamilton and maybe some other lucky individual or a couple other lucky individuals on that team are going to have these far larger point totals than what we would have expected. Kind of think about a couple of years ago when Barkov and Huberto break out to 90 point levels because they've got Dodonov and Hoffman now finishing and they've turned into this power play juggernaut. If that's going to happen for Svechkov and Carolina this season, then I probably should have pushed a few more chips in on some of the other Carolina players, and I didn't. And so I'm wondering if my strategy is a little bit flawed in that sense. It could be, but it's also uh, it's tough to want to throw all of your eggs into one basket as well, especially for a team like Carolina that seems to have a bit of a recent history of not being able to finish uh, quite as well as a team of their caliber should. I, I do agree that uh, Svechnikov does look prime to take another big step forward on top of uh, his season from last year. And I don't have his numbers up uh, right now, but off the top of my head, I think he was about a 70 point pace. I don't know if you, yeah, he was he was like 60 and 68 or something like that. Very okay. close to that. And, and if he take if he takes another step, we're talking above a point per game and now he's into superstar type territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking uh somewhere around a point per game, maybe uh 85 and 82 uh sounds about right for this season. That's kind of where I see him uh assuming things kind of fall in the right way he's healthy for the year all that kind of thing can i interest you in 55 and 48 because they're not going to play 82 (laughs) games i I know they're not i think it's just easier to project on an 82 game pace and then uh, scale it down once we know what kind of number of games we're going to be seeing yeah for sure one of the things that was interesting about this whole process was i haven't done my projections for the whatever the upcoming season might happen to be. I don't know if I'm just putting it off because a little bit exhausted of hockey after the long playoff run that was this summer, or if it's just, there's so much uncertainty that I just, I don't want to engage in the project. I've I've started looking into it a little bit this week. I'm doing some, some preliminary research and stuff like that. I know, I know the folks at Dauber hockey, you guys already have your guide out for the upcoming season and I'm sure it'll be tweaked as more and more information comes out regarding health of players, timelines, all that stuff, but I haven't done it. And so that was an, another interesting part of this process was just kind of flying blind and, and the intuitions that are eventually going to inform what I do for my projections, I guess, informed how I wanted to spend money in this situation. And I really like Svechnikov, but the fact that I wasn't all in on some of the other 
options on Carolina tells me that maybe I should be backing off on my breakout forecasts for Svechnikov. That's an interesting uh, point to kind of take. And yeah, Carolina is a, they do seem to be quite a top heavy team in terms of the fantasy assets available. They have the loaded top line with Teravine and Aho and uh, Svechnikov. And then after that, you're looking at uh, Trocek and Martin Natchez and it, it really falls off after that. So I, I can't blame you too, too much about uh, not being all in on the rest of the team, but really still wanting to kind of have that Svechnikov stock. I'll, I'll be curious to see what you end up uh, deciding on when your projections do end up uh, getting finalized there. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting process because I don't have, I know a lot of people have like very specific models that everything's based on previous seasons and statistical regressions and all that stuff mine's not nearly that nuanced but um certainly what people have done in prior seasons is is a factor in what i do um but moving on from svechnikov and carolina you spent the same amount on fiala as you would have on svechnikov had your bid been the winner and they did score at a reasonably similar rate this past season and you could argue that Fiala trending more into the breakout realm because of I mean he sucked for the first month of the season and then he was basically a point per game the rest of the way once he found himself so do you think that he is going to be able to continue that even with some of the exodus of talent that the Minnesota Wild have experienced? Because I don't necessarily feel that way. I don't know if I would uh, say that Minnesota has seen an exodus of talent. I would say they've seen a bit of an exchange of talent. Uh, the Eric Stahl for Marcus Johansson trade was a bit of a head scratcher. The Benino for Kunin trade is uh, a bit more of an overall upgrade than it is an offensive uh, value. But uh, I think the addition of Kirill Kaprizov is going to really uh, free up Fiala to keep up his point-per-game pace. So I do think that he can uh, put up at least 70 points in a full season and maybe up to the same kind of similar heights as Svechnikov there with a little over a point a game in a full season. So, yeah, I I do think there's uh, the ability for him to do that. And I know we're both uh, pretty high on Marco Rossi getting uh, the opportunity to start off uh, possibly centering both of those talented wingers. So uh, I think there's uh, a lot to like. I agree that uh, there has been a lot of turnover in the Minnesota forward group, but I don't think it's going to hurt Fiala. I'll be interested to see because... Minnesota last season, I think people would think that they were still this kind of defensive minded team and they were a top 10 scoring team last season and they were much more offensively minded 
than they have been in the past. And I think that gave some free reign to Fiala. And I think that none of the centermen that they brought in are offering much in the way of offense. I think they've reverted back to bringing in more defensive minded type players. And we'll see if they do end up loading up a top line and maybe even a top power play to where they can continue to get the offense that they saw out of Fiala this past season. And we'll see if he can continue to be a main driver now that he's had this breakout season and he's, he's going to be the focus for a lot of teams. And so how does he hold up to scrutiny now that he's kind of the guy that teams are keying in on and can he still produce now that he's got that label? I do have some concerns about that factor. And overall, I, I think that Minnesota is going through this weird transition phase where a lot of players that they brought in this past season aren't necessarily going to be there in a couple of years, but I do like the direction that they're heading in. I think they could become this really phenomenal offensive team maybe in a year or two, but I don't necessarily know if that's going to come right away. I think it, it may take Marco Rossi a little bit to become the absolute force that I think that he can be. I think he's going to be productive, but I don't necessarily know that he's going to be keying a juggernaut top line. And Kaprizov will, the jury's out on what exactly he's going to be. He's almost certainly going to be a good NHL player, but to what extent that leads to offense, I'm skeptical. I think that's fair. I'm generally over the last few years, I've been skeptical about anything Minnesota based. Uh, They just seem to have higher expectations than they ever do results. But uh, I'm cautiously optimistic with uh, Fiala at this point. Fair enough. Um, Another huge discrepancy between what you bid and what I bid was on a player in Eric Carlson. You mentioned that you went heavy on bids for defensemen and Eric Carlson was a guy that you bid a ton on. And I didn't bid, I, I bid a quarter of what your winning bid ended up being. So what's your philosophy on Eric Carlson? Like, do you think he's headed for uh, an extreme bounce back season? Uh, I think uh, it's, funny that an extreme bounce back season would be necessary uh i'm just gonna pull up his numbers here because they weren't actually that bad over the course of uh the entire last season he put up uh 40 points in 56 games and adding on a few points to that that's still uh close to his 60 point pace that uh I think could be reasonable for next year if things don't really improve in San Jose. I'm, I, I think in my numbers, I have him uh, pegged for around 60 to 65 next year. And if he can kind of take all of the time off the rest that he had, and if he can come back fully healthy for the first time in a long time, then we could see him back to, kind of really that prime offensive weapon that he was a few years ago 
So, yeah, I'm I'm optimistic uh, that there is still a lot in the tank for him that he has to give. It is a big risk. I do understand that, and maybe he flops to another thirty-five points in fifty games, and that's all he can really put up, and he hobbles around in the defensive zone and just doesn't look the same. It's a big possibility, but uh, on day five in the bidding uh, in the auction draft that we had, he was uh, one of the last kind of top tier defensemen that I still saw on the board. And I really wanted to get in on at least one more of them. So he was uh, somebody I was open to bidding a bit more on than uh, he might have uh, gone for otherwise. But uh, yeah, I was happy to get him, even if it was uh, whatever it ended up being about $30, which seems to be yeah quite a bit more than uh, what you ended up putting down on him. Yeah, with Carlson, early on in before the return to play, I was, I was kind of kicking the tires on the notion that he, and really that whole San Jose team, because they were littered with injuries last season could benefit from all this time off. And we'll see if they do end up benefiting from all this time off and they get to come back healthy. And you're talking about a 60 point pace for Carlson though. And that also counts on him playing 82 games, which I believe he did in his first go around with the Sharks, but he certainly missed time last season with injuries. And I think that's becoming more and more prevalent as his career has gone on. And I don't know if I've been influenced by reading too much Jack Hahn and Jay Fresh, where they're talking about parallels to degradation in Carlson's game that, uh, that parallel the the same degradation in PK Subban's game to the point where he's 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 no longer a star. He's no longer even necessarily a, a positive player at this stage in his career. Everything's his mobility is such that now everything's just off the glass and out. And we aren't quite there with Carlson, but he's trending in that direction. And I think I think the bet that you've made is that all this time off will serve him well and that he's going to see some improvements in terms of his mobility in in such a manner that he can get back up to where he was before, or that all this time off allows him to discover new strategies to mitigate the loss in mobility that he's seen as a result of all the injuries that have piled up. And he's clearly still a genius player, so I, I would count on him I mean, the fact that he was as productive as he was still highlights just how how effective he is, even despite some of his limitations. But I don't know. There's I'm I'm not ready to dive full bore into that San Jose situation because I just I mean I, I look at that situation and there's a there's a ton of players that I see getting hurt again and again. And I think that injuries could be a huge factor for that team going forward and not just in Carlson, but for that, the whole team. And that might be their undoing as much as they have all this veteran talent. And I think that they could be primed to bounce back better than 
you would expect based on how awful they were last season. I think that they could be a surprise playoff team, but that would have to result from the whole team being a lot healthier. Yeah, it's definitely a risk and it's always tough to try and project injuries. And we haven't really ever seen uh, kind of a weird situation where part of the league had so much more time off than uh, the other three quarters of it. And we don't know how some players are going to come back from the shorter time off. Some are going to come back from the longer time off and how a pandemic thrown in the middle of it all affects everything. So it's, yeah, it is a bit of a dice roll with uh, bidding that much on Carlson, but uh, sometimes you have to bid on talent and he was one of the last uh, top tier guys that I saw available. So I, felt it was a necessary risk to take. I mean, clearly you're a believer. Like you think that not, not, mm-hmm. I don't want to speak for you, but from what I'm getting is you don't think that he's fallen that far, at least in terms of his offensive production. Correct. Okay. Um, so another disparity that I noticed uh, Anze Kopitar, I got him for seven bucks, so not a whole lot, but you placed no bid on Anze Kopitar. So I'm wondering, no love for Kopitar? What day was this? Oh, God, I couldn't tell you. It was, it was later in the draft. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. And I'm wondering if it was more, uh, there it is. It was day eight and... Yeah, I think at that point I was uh, kind of being a little bit more selective with who I was bidding on because I didn't have a lot of money left to waste. And I figured I could fill out my bottom four forwards or so with some pretty bargain players. And so I had another kind of two or three big name forwards left that I could kind of really bid over on. And Kopitar didn't really fit in uh, with the same level of guys that I was kind of bidding bigger money on with Alex Barkov, Taylor Hall. And uh, I'm wondering if you're going to bring up my Matt Barzell bid later. Oh, it's coming. Uh, Yeah, I thought so. (laughs) Um. And yeah, I just didn't see Kopitar on quite that same level. And so I just said, you know what, I'll let him go somewhere else and uh, keep things simpler on my end. Yeah, I think that with a lot of those players, I was still putting in $2 bids and stuff like that, where, mm-hmm. hey, if, if I get this guy for a bargain, but I, ultimately I got Kopitar for seven. I think that there's nowhere for, the Kings offense to go, but up, I don't think they can get worse than what they were. So Kopitar still has that elite talent. I don't think he's going to be an elite performer. I don't think we're getting 90 points out of him again, but if that offense could be a little bit better then he's a point per game guy and for seven bucks, I like that. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I think the other kind of red flags going up for me are, I know you're saying that they can't really get worse, but I'm wondering if they can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, with LA, they had uh, 
almost a career season revival from Dustin Brown last year. And I don't know if he can keep that up again with whatever he's turning 34, 35 now. And they have one of the best farm teams in the league, but I don't know if they have that many players that are ready to step in and shoulder a load next year. So whether they run out the same lineup as last year with everybody a year older, or if they run out a younger lineup where you have to shelter a lot of these rookies, Carlson's taking, or sorry, not Carlson, Kopitar is taking on uh, maybe a bit more of uh, a sheltered, or sorry, of a role that is used to shelter the rest of the team. And he might end up uh, taking a lot more defensive zone faceoffs, a lot more uh, kind of harder minutes. And you free up that power play time and those offensive zone starts for some of those depth players that you need to shelter and the rookies on their way up. So I, I'm not confident that uh, we've seen kind of the lowest numbers out of the top guys in LA yet. That's interesting. I'm trying to think of an analogous situation to compare that to, and I'm not necessarily getting there. I think that we saw a similar type fall from the Anaheim Ducks and Getzlaff is a little bit farther along in his career mm -hmm. than Kopitar is, but he still maintained some high level, uh, some high levels of production even as that team started to fall off. So I don't know. I, I guess we'll see if things actually can get worse for that team. But uh, it, it is a, a point well taken that Dustin Brown having a renaissance season isn't necessarily something to bank on. Um, you referenced your stark overbid for Matt Barzell. So Tell me what you see there, because as far as I can tell, Lou Lamorello and Barry Trotz are still in charge of the New York Islanders. Yeah, it, it's uh, it was a bit. Uh, yeah, it was an overbid. We'll, we'll go with that. I think what I saw was that uh, I at that point looked ahead to the rest of how I was going to fill out my lineup and the rest of the player pool that was available. And I said, there's one guy left that I would have any confidence bidding on as being able to hit a point per game as a forward. And that was Matt Barzell. So I said, I, I need to fill out my forwards. I'm going to make sure I get him. And everybody else I can fill out with, 65 70 point guys they're going to be dime a dozen available at the end of the draft uh only having to fill out 10 forwards for 10 teams there's definitely 100 guys in the league that i feel confident filling out my last four spots with but barzell was the only one kind of still in that possible 80 85 point in a full season tier so i said i was going to get them and i forget how much farther above the next bid I was, but it, uh, it was a bit ludicrous. 
Yeah, I think everyone else in the league said, no, actually, Matt Barzell is in that 65 to 70 point tier because he plays for the New York Islanders. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, it's it's tough. I think uh, Barzell has had some great seasons and he's been a little lower of late, but I think the Pajot addition can really free him up offensively. I think uh, with Devin Tays moving on and uh, we're either going to have Ryan Pulak or Noah Dobson running the top power play, which I'm a big fan of either option. And I do think they're going to start running a single top power play. And from there, it's not too hard to see Barzell being at the center of all of that and getting back up to the point for game pace. Maybe it's a bit bold to see that in a uh, state with the Islanders currently in with Lamorello and Barry Trotz and the defensive juggernaut they have going, but uh I, I do think he's going to maybe surprise a couple of people and definitely uh, definitely surpass 65 points if he doesn't uh, quite make it up to 80. Yeah, I think he was pacing for roughly 70 this past season, but I just I don't see that front office group being the type that is going to allow a player to play the 20 plus minutes a night. You need to be a point per game type player and I think that Devin Taves loss is huge. I don't know if Noah Dobson's necessarily tracking to be the offensive player that we hoped he might be when he was drafted. And I don't know that Ryan Pulak is that guy either. And I think that a lot of what Devin Taves did, he's very much a link in the chain that allowed them to be such a effective counterattack type team. And I think that they're going to miss him a lot more then maybe they realize and maybe that is mitigated if what we saw from Nick Letty in the playoffs kind of returning to form and being able to be a closer to a top pairing type defenseman than bottom pairing which is what he looked like for a lot of the last regular season if he's a little bit healthier and I know on previous podcasts, I've been remiss in noting that he's not as old as I thought he was. He's not 30 yet. So <laughs> he's, he's, he's on the right side of the ledger in that regard. So there's reason for optimism about Letty being, I don't know, maybe he gets back to, to being that guy who runs their top power play unit. And I think their power play units are going to be split up, but yeah, I don't think that necessarily the amount that you spent on Barzell is I, – I think that the amount that you spent on Barzell is reflective of the disparity in talent level relative to what else was available, but not necessarily relative to the disparity in point production of what was available, if that makes any sense. Uh, that makes some sense. Uh, I did just want to point out that uh, you said the Islander system wouldn't be able to afford him uh, 20 minutes a night to be able to go out and be a point per game player. Mm -hmm. And pointing out that he was actually over 20 minutes a game last season and in no kidding. the last, yeah, 20 minutes and three seconds. 
And in his last quarter of the season, so the last seven games before it got shut down, he was playing 21 minutes, 49 seconds a game and put up eight points in seven games. Well, then that. um, I'll eat a nice plate of shit if that continues. Do you know when uh, Pajot came into the picture with the Islanders? Well, that was right at the deadline, right? Which was right about seven games uh, remaining in the regular season. And did that trend continue throughout the playoffs? I can pull that up for you if you want, but uh, wouldn't surprise me too much to see it. Well, that'd be interesting because with the exodus of talent that is that has happened and is likely to continue to happen just because of their RFA situation. They did end up getting Pulak signed for a handful of seasons and they're going to find a way to get Barzell signed. It's just a question of when and what money, how much they pay to offload the money that they need to be able to get him under contract so that they can field a roster, but by getting rid of some of these high-priced veterans and getting rid of some high-level talents like Taves, I think that there's going to be, I guess, the potential for them to lean more heavily on guys like Peugeot and Barzal because of how much they're going to need them because they're leaving a lot to be desired with the depth of the roster. Yeah, yeah, it's... uh... It's definitely going to be an interesting situation to watch. I think uh, they do have a stronger team up front than they did uh, last season. And if they can phase Johnny Boychuk out, I've heard rumblings that they still want to bring back Andy Green on defense. And if they can do that and phase out Johnny Boychuk, they should be stronger on defense too. Although the departure of uh, Devin Taze does hurt. Uh, I did just pull up the, numbers from the playoffs and he was averaging only uh just under 18 minutes a game yeah Uh, sorry he was was, sorry he was 20 minutes a game in the playoffs but uh only 17 points in 22 games okay and the time on ice is inflated a little bit due to a couple games over 30 minutes which i'm assuming were longer overtime games yeah, that falls a little bit more in line with what I was thinking on the Barzal front, but the mm-hmm. the regular season numbers that you referenced from last season um, indicate to me that maybe I'm a little bit out of touch with my perceptions versus reality with regard to Barzal. I guess I would question if he is playing all those minutes and he's not putting up a point per game, what is the disconnect there? And it could just come down to it being playoff hockey where he was playing 20 minutes a game and it not uh, quite equating just because teams are scoring less. I, I don't have a better answer than that for you right now. I meant more like playoffs aside, oh, because you're, you're playing, you're playing better teams in the playoffs. So it's, it's not that shocking to me that his numbers might suffer in a playoff mm-hmm. environment. And frankly, the numbers that he put up, in the playoffs would suggest to me that he could possibly score a point per game in the regular season because he is going to have 
easier matchups to feast on and the like. And I also think that just in general, they turned into a way better offensive team than you would have thought in the playoffs. So if what happened in the playoffs continued into next season, and I don't think that it will, but if it were to, then I would expect him to score closer to a point per game because what they did in the playoffs was frankly, they, they turned themselves into an elite two-way team and I wouldn't have expected that from them at all. Yeah, they, they were looking primed to just run through uh, anybody they could at that point. Uh, they were a lot better than I gave them credit for uh, at the start of the playoffs anyway. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is, was this the stars aligning and a team going on a miraculous run or does it pretend to things in the future? I, I would think maybe a little bit of A, a little bit of B, but I think with uh, some of the lost talent, I think they're going to regress pretty badly next season and they're going to have to rely a lot more on that defensive identity. And that for me means Barzal, despite the shimmering offensive talent that he is, is going to underperform in terms of point totals relative to what he could do if he was in a more freewheeling type system. It's definitely fair. I think uh, we can definitely agree that he is uh, limited with the Islanders and somewhere else he might be able to even hit a hundred or so in some of his best years, but uh, there's no way we're going to see that with the Islanders. Um, But uh, Doug Wade is not, walking back through those doors <laughs> no but i do think uh we could see a season or two uh in the next few where he does uh come up to point per game or at least very close right i mean he's done it before so why couldn't he do it again and it's not like his point pace last season was that far off in a season where they were fairly defensive oriented i want to pick your brain on what happened with john tavares who is a player that you nominated on one of the days in this draft and then you didn't end up bidding very much at all for him and then later on you ended up spending 30 bucks on barzell thinking he's the only point per game guy left in this draft. So I'm wondering if you can explain the disconnect there a little bit. Are you sour on Tavares? How early did uh, Tavares get nominated there? I'm just trying. It to... was day five or six. Yeah, day five. And I think the day before, who did we see go? We saw Austin Matthews get nominated the day before. And I think... Most of these days, I wasn't going off of any list for a nomination. I was just uh, coming up with a player name off the top of my head. And I generally was focusing on defense earlier in the draft. But uh, I I was also trying to find a couple of names that I think, uh, or at least that I thought people might uh, bid a little higher on and try and drive up uh, prices to try and find some bargains later. Not that that really ended up happening in my case, but yeah, I think that was why I ended up pulling up John Tavares. And at that point in the draft, there was still a lot of 
there were a lot of bigger names still left on the table. And on that day, uh, there was Crosby, Quinn Hughes, Eric Carlson, Evgeny Malkin that I bid bigger money on. I ended up tying my bid on Crosby and missing out on him due to the tiebreaker and winning the bids on Quinn Hughes and Eric Carlson. And I think bidding all of that big money that one day is why I didn't uh, put in a bigger number on John Tavares. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that we allowed for is priority listing. So you could have put Mm -hmm. together a, a group of those three big names and added Tavares to it as well and bid something closer to the market price for a point per game type player. And you could have just said, I want two of these in this order. And that would have prevented you from overspending on them. And I guess I've just, I don't know. I saw the disparity there and I was wondering if it was not strategy linked and it was more, you don't believe in Tavares. And maybe there is a little bit of that as well. Maybe I do think that he's uh, going to be stuck below a point a game now. He's on the other end of uh, 30 and he was below a point per game last season. And yeah, maybe with the emergence of Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner kind of taking over when they were paired together, Maybe I do see Tavares now as uh, somebody who's going to settle into more so the 75-point range rather than 80-85 kind of thing in full seasons. And that's why I just didn't want to get into possibly overbidding on him. I'm not sure if it was uh, something conscious that made me kind of come in low on my bid on him though i i don't have something big against him or some underlying numbers i was looking at saying yeah i really don't want him on my team i think it was uh maybe just a bit of an oversight not putting in quite uh market value on him and maybe a little combination of yeah i don't think he's quite as high on my list as he might be on some others Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I would wonder if he couldn't get back above a point per game. I'm trying to bring up um, Toronto's power play numbers from last season because I recollect that maybe their power play wasn't as effective as it had been in previous years. Mm -hmm. And I think that that would go a decent way in getting him back up to snuff it was it was fairly effective but they've had they were sixth in the league in goals per 60 at five on four um above eight goals per 60 in that range but this is a team that's also they've had seasons where they put up we're talking 10 plus goals per 60 on the power play and that's the range that the Oilers were in last season and that does absolute wonders for player point totals. So I wonder if there's not another gear that the Leafs could potentially tap into with a full season under the new head coach. And I also wonder if there isn't 
because of now the lack of forward depth that they have, they still have strong forward depth, but they don't have quite what they had before. I wonder if it's going to result in even more use of their top two lines in scoring situations. Certainly we saw in the playoffs, there were times when they put Matthews and Tavares out there on the ice together when they were desperate for a goal. And I wonder if we could see a little bit more of that. We've seen that from elite center duos in the past in Edmonton and in Pittsburgh and in other situations where you load up these top lines when you're desperate for a goal. And that can really go a long way to goosing player point totals as well. So I think that there's potential for more. I think that last season was... I don't know, did it not feel like a very funky one for the Leafs just in terms of fantasy play? It it really did. And I think the Mike Babcock uh, firing uh, partway into the year, which feels like it was four years ago now. um, It was. It was four years ago. I don't know if you've acknowledged the time warp that we're in, but that yeah, yeah, that's the case. Okay. Just making sure we're on the same page there. But uh, yeah, it, it was a very weird one. And it, it feels like a lot of them disappointed across the board, even though they did put up excellent totals. Uh, the power play struggled. Tyson Berry struggled to integrate. Morgan Riley didn't put up the same numbers as he had. Frederick Anderson uh, was valuable uh, based pretty much just on his volume and not as much on his ratios. It it was a bit of a weird year all around. And maybe you're right. Maybe we do see uh, John Tavares bounce back right to kind of his just over point per game from the last few years. And this was a bit of an anomaly and he's definitely smart enough and talented enough to do so even past the age of 30. It's not like he's, a player that has relied on uh, solely his kind of speed and all of that uh, to make him such a skilled player. He's a smart player. He knows how to distribute the puck. He knows how to get to the right spots to put himself into better situations to make plays and uh, to be available for teammates. So Yeah, he's not somebody that's going to fall off a cliff and all of a sudden not be worth uh, much in fantasy leagues. But uh, I I don't know if I don't know if he has another ninety point season in him or that pace anyway. And even with loading up uh, lines in Toronto, I'm not sure I'm as enthusiastic about him as you are. I do also wonder, you were mentioning the Toronto depth, and if you have a third line of Joe Thornton, Jason Spezza, and Jimmy Vesey, for example, do you not want to just give them every offensive zone face-off that you can and sometimes start your big lines back in the defensive zone where they can end up rushing up the ice rather than uh, just setting up shop? Would that not be more advantageous? I don't think there's any chance that you're seeing the Joe Thornton, Jason Spezza, Jimmy VC combination being their third line, unless some things have gone horribly awry for that team. I think that Jason Spezza and Joe Thornton are 
basically going to be taking turns as fourth line center and you're almost never going to see them on the ice at the same time as much as fans we might want to just for the novelty of it yeah i I think i think there's a chance that we we could see them in the lineup on the same night but i I would i would think that's going to be a scarce occurrence i think those guys are going to kind of be interchangeable in the lineup to keep them both fresh and yeah, that doesn't strike me as something that they would roll out there as a third line. Now, if, if it ends up being a fourth line for them, then sure, you're going to give them cushy matchups, but you're not going to give them more than 10 minutes a night anyway. So uh, to me, that situation, it's it, minutes for John Tavares are not going to be lost because you've got Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza on the roster. Right. I, I think the point I was trying to make is if, if you are giving uh, John Tavares all of the offensive zone starts and same with Austin Matthews, then who's starting in defensive zone? Uh, I mean, Kerfoot takes a lot of the uh, weight there, but uh, they don't really have a lot of defensive players in their bottom six, especially. So Maybe Travis Boyd is brought in for that. I, I don't really know what uh, the outlook's going to look like, but uh, just a bit of a thought that maybe you do end up having uh, John Tavares start uh, more defensive zone faceoffs than he's used to. Well, defensive zone draws aren't always necessarily the worst thing. I think that no. you can you can become over fixated on that because. Mm-hmm. Early after a face-off, it's highly likely that you're going to get scored on relative to other situations when you're starting in the defensive zone. But after that, the fact that you're in the defensive zone gives you the chance to have breakouts the other way. And rush chances are also an opportunity for high-efficient scoring chances. So just from the outset, I don't think that starting in the defensive zone is necessarily a negative. It is in the first five, 10, 15 seconds after a draw because you're more likely to get scored on if you lose that draw. But otherwise, I don't necessarily know that it's a, a huge detriment. That's fair. Um, you had a couple of interesting pairings late in the draft that I'm curious if you want to elaborate on. You paired up Nikita Gusev and Jack Hughes off the New Jersey Devils. Is that a pairing you see as being highly fruitful or are you just kind of taking swings at this point? What did you see there? I I think uh, it definitely has a lower floor than what I usually look for in fantasy options. But yeah, it's a big swing. It's the ceiling that uh, what they could put up is huge and for the acquisition cost it made a lot of sense to go there uh to go for gusev and hughes both uh settling in after a full season and new jersey kind of owning who they actually are and not the uh team that wins the off season and has a whole lot of expectations on their shoulders and yeah i i think that we could see 
over 70 points from both of them next season. And if I get that out of them, then I'm very happy. Uh, but the floor is definitely also there that we could see Hughes struggle to another 40 points or so. And Gusev kind of tags along with them and New Jersey just struggles down to be maybe even worse than Ottawa or Detroit next year. Cause you look at their lineup on paper and they don't have a lot, uh, to get too excited about, especially once you get past the top couple of players. That's interesting. I'm wondering why you keyed in on Hughes and Gusev, say relative to Kishir and Palmieri, because if I was going to be steering towards a tandem off that New Jersey team, I'd probably be looking at those two who have a, a stronger track record and are a little bit farther along. I think uh, Heischer is definitely a great name, and he deserves to be in that same really high ceiling with uh, Hughes and Gusev. I, I think Palmieri is a little bit more capped in his upside, and he's definitely more injury-prone as well. I see him more as a guy who plays... 70 games in a full season and gets you 50, 55 points rather than, uh, and he's very consistent in that regard rather than uh, kind of having the upside of a later pick in the draft that might be able to get you 75 points. Well, remember it wasn't a draft. It was an auction. It was, but and <laughs> as one of your last picks. Fair enough. Um, another tandem that you went ahead with, and it's not a tandem that we've seen play together before, but we might see play together was Columbus's new acquisition of Max Domi. And as well as, I don't know, was he their top scoring forward last season in Oliver Bjorkstrand? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, uh, he at least should be in the conversation uh, in terms of rate stats, one of their top guys, but he did miss a lot of time with an ankle injury last year. So I don't think to his totals are quite going to show up as uh, one of their top uh, options from last year. But yeah, I, I'm excited about Bjorkstrand and I think Max Domi is going to be given a lot of uh, offensive opportunities. He has, a lot of defensive forwards uh, to kind of play behind him at this point with, well, I don't know if Dubois is going to be behind him necessarily, but uh, now that they have also gotten rid of Alex Wenberg, they have a lot of uh, offensive minutes freed up. They have a lot of opportunities to kind of break out and put a few very offensive minded players together like Bjorkstrand and Domi and really have the opportunity to click there. Their power play, I think, has run pretty smoothly over the last few years. Though there is the downside of being similar to the Islanders that with Tortorella there, they are a little uh, limited in their upside potentially uh, as a team. So it, it's a bit of a risk reward play at that point in the draft I was trying to go uh, swing for upside picks and I saw Bjorkstrand and Domi as both good options there 
uh, similar to the Gusev and Hughes uh, play. I mean, Bjorkstrand, he's so tantalizing. He could so easily, you could see this path to becoming a 30 goal, 70 point forward if he could put it all together and maybe playing with an elite offensive creator, even one as flawed defensively as Domi, maybe he can coax that out of him. And you can certainly see where a team like Columbus, who has all these elite two-way type forwards that play such a sound game, but also Tortorella has that philosophy where he wants you to take risks. So he wants defensive accountability, but he also wants you to take offensive risks because he he sees the need for that. And you can see that in the way that they allow Wierenski and Jones to activate as much as they do. And so in theory, pairing those two guys together, you think okay, these guys are both capable of putting up 70 plus points. We've seen it in flashes now let's put them together and see if we can actually get that magic. And with all the defensive players that they do have, you could see where they would be leaning into giving them favorable matchups and uh, favorable zone starts and a lot of power play time. And I wonder if it would come together for them or if Tortorella isn't tearing his hair out because Domi is just an absolute sieve defensively and it all goes as poorly as it seems to have at Domi's other stops. It very well could. But that's part of the fun. And uh, I, I think with this, you have to make a couple of swings if you are going to come out on top. And hey, there's a pizza on the line. So got to try to win some way. I've already counted on myself winning so i've already eaten my victory pizza but i'll have another victory pizza when i actually win okay (laughs) Uh, that's one of the uh positives to come out of the last few months for me is uh, i got a pizza stone for christmas and i have been hugely taking advantage of that so i even if i don't win i can still make my own pizza and i'll still be happy now, are you making the bread from scratch and mm-hmm. squashing the tomatoes as well? and Everything. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. It's a can of diced tomatoes that I end up uh, pulsing up and uh, using for the sauce. But uh... Okay. So the next step is to get yourself uh, a nice, find yourself a nice counter, bit of counter space and start growing your own in the windowsill. Yep, that, that'll be uh, for next year. I'll have to buy a tomato plant. Tomato plant singular? Come on now. Multiple. There's only so much counter space in an apartment. Yeah, fair enough. I think that you're going to have to do some bargaining to, to get yourself a little bit more of that counter space. One plant's going uh, to get you like one pizza. Maybe I'll have to look into how much it is to rent garden space somewhere. Now you're talking, join a community garden. That, that sounds like something uh, 80-year-old me will end up doing. No doubt. I, um, 
aspirationally I want to be like my grandfather whose his backyard was essentially an entire garden but mm -hmm. going through the actual process of getting there is confounding to me at this point in my life so I've gone like I've gotten absolutely none of that accomplished and I don't know when I'm going to start but uh 80 sounds about right yeah, if you can't start uh, gardening during a pandemic, then uh, yeah, it might be another 50 years before we do get to it. Yeah, I mean, I use the excuse that my day job draws me away from home for multiple weeks at a time, and that's not necessarily good for gardening, but really that's just an excuse. I, it's a good excuse not to get a pet, but uh, I, I'm sure you could manage a garden one way or another. Yeah, I also use that as an excuse not to get a pet. Which is unfortunate, but uh, it, it is necessary work that you do do. Yeah, I, I don't want to be one of those deadbeat pet owners, so I'm just not going to be a pet owner. It's responsible thinking. <laughs> It's, it, it's me being simultaneously lazy and also being able to logically poo-poo that laziness. It's the uh, upside and the downside to being a logical thinker is you can make laziness work for you. Yes, at, at, at every turn. I, I'm curious, with this pizza stone, how often are you making pizzas? probably at least once a week. No kidding. So you have pizza night? It's more so just when the craving hits. There's no rhyme or reason to when it is. Sometimes it's for lunch. Mm. I feel like just counting on the craving to hit is a recipe to eating pizza for every meal. It, it is, but there is also the need to plan ahead uh, in terms of getting the dough to rise. Right. And all of that. So it doesn't end up, uh, hasn't come on too often to this point. And I've been managing probably about once a week. Okay. But uh, if it wasn't so labor intensive, it definitely could be a uh, three times a day for an entire week kind of thing. But, you know, kneading that dough would give you the, um, the calorie deficit that you need to justify eating all that pizza. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. And then, uh, yeah, I, I don't really have a good argument against that. I, I can't argue against pizza. Yeah. But at what point do you just become this basically machine that all you do is make pizza so that you can eat pizza and then you're just pizza the hut? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great reference. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't have too much to add to that. There's pizza's excellent, and I enjoy making it out as much as possible. But uh, there does come a limit, time-wise and effort-wise and ingredient-wise, to how often you can reasonably do it. Right. And were you interested in baking before you got this baking stone? Like, is that how you kind of got into this, or were you baking pizzas not so great so then 
someone decided to get you a pizza stone so you your pizza game leveled up i do cook quite a bit and both cook and bake and uh i'd tried out uh making pizzas every once in a while maybe once every month or two starting last summer and then it was actually my wife that uh, got me the pizza stone and as she says it's the best gift that she ever gave me it's the gift that keeps on giving back to her exactly in the form of pizza exactly mm. have you how much experimenting are you doing with your doughs are you getting super funky with it or do you have something that's kind of tried and true and you're sticking with it i i haven't gotten too funky with it i have tried a couple of different recipes and generally try only one new thing each time now that i kind of have a base to go off of so i can test out oh changing uh whatever the amount of oil or putting more salt or leaving it to rise longer or whatever uh, and kind of seeing how each of those affects it at this point. I, I haven't gotten to the point of getting crazy with it, but uh, that might be for next year. I'm super intrigued in this process because I'm, I'm a baking dabbler, but mostly I just kind of mm -hmm. follow recipes and I'm like, oh, this, this works. Okay, so that's something that I can do. But I haven't gotten into the world of breads. I've just recently started trying to make some breads that don't involve yeast to see if I can figure out how to make that work. And I haven't been able to make that work. So I'm thinking about, okay, am I going to start trying to do the yeast and then deal with all the rising and that silliness? And it sounds like you've found that that process is an impediment to you eating pizza. So I can only imagine that someone who has already commented on how he will find any excuse not to do something is going to then use rising time as an excuse not to do baking of breads. Uh, so I wonder how that's going to hold me back, but it's something that I'm going to try in the near future. And maybe at some point in time, we can uh, discuss that further. Sure. Anytime you uh, want to ask anything about it, I'm around, you know where to find me, but uh... Yeah, give it a try. It's definitely uh, definitely pays for itself with the effort it's it requires. All right. So next next time on the Steve Laidlaw podcast, <laughs> we will uh, have a, a full on baking breakdown with Alex McLean. Okay, I can uh, see if I can type up the recipe for you if you want. Yeah, I would. I would love to have your pizza dough recipe i'm gonna try to bake it in my oven that bakes way too hot yeah you need a hot oven well so i've got the right one for the job okay um go. alex this is a lot of fun we went in a lot of different directions i don't want to monopolize any more of your time today uh so thanks for coming on the podcast is there anything that you would like to plug before we get out of here other than baking tips uh yeah come for the fantasy hockey stay for the baking tips um i i don't think uh there's anything too crazy just the uh dauber hockey guide that if you're listening to this podcast then you should be crazy enough about hockey to be interested enough in buying it 
it's well worth the what uh, it costs and should pay back if in entertainment value alone let alone uh, additions to your fantasy hockey knowledge and uh, you can find that at the Dauber Hockey website and otherwise that's all for me at the moment all right Alex this was a tremendous amount of fun uh, so take care yeah thanks for having me on Steve pleasure as always all right, everyone, that was our show. If you like what you listen to, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and we will catch you on the next episode.